0: Welcome back to RoshCast for episode 13. We're going to start off this week's episode with a rapid review of some of the cardiology-related questions we've covered in the past 12 episodes. I'll get us started. What is the most common exam finding in patients with acute aortic dissection?
1: Well, in acute aortic dissection, the most common exam finding is hypertension. Define a fusion beat. Fusion beats are QRS complexes with a hybrid morphology of a sinus beat and an intraventricular beat. that results from impulses from two different locations activating the ventricle. One of the impulses is typically ventricular and the other is typically supraventricular. Don't confuse this with a capture beat, which is a normal QRS complex in a run of ventricular beats.
0: And what is the mechanism of nitrate therapy?
1: Well, nitrate therapy works by reducing both the preload and the afterload by dilating veins, coronary, and systemic arteries by relaxing smooth vascular muscles.
0: Name the five cyanotic heart lesions. Remember the five T's
1: and the one through five mnemonic, one for truncus arteriosus, 2 for transposition of the great vessels, 3 for tricuspid atresia, 4 for tetralogy of Fallot, and lastly, 5 for total anomalous pulmonary vascular return.
0: Great review. Next time we'll start out with a review of orthopedics. Let's move on to the new material. You're up first. Which of the following is the most common complication associated with an anterior shoulder dislocation? Is it A, axillary nerve injury, B, Bankart lesion, C, greater tuberosity fracture, or D, a Hill-Sachs defect.
1: The most common complication of an anterior shoulder dislocation is definitely choice D, a Hill-Sachs defect. I feel like it's always there.
0: That's right. In an anterior shoulder dislocation, it's not too uncommon to see a Hill-Sachs defect. They actually occur in up to 40% of cases. And just as a reminder, this defect is a depression fracture of the posterior lateral surface of the humeral head, and it's caused by compression against the lower glenoid rim.
1: And the other answer choices here all occur with similar frequencies, much less than 40%. Injury to the axillary nerve occurs in up to 14% of dislocations. Most patients eventually recover completely. Bank heart lesions, which are fractures of the anterior aspect of the inferior glenoid rim, occur in 10-20% to 20% of anterior shoulder dislocations. Lastly, fractures of the greater tuberosity occur in about 15% of anterior dislocations.
0: And how would one test the function of the axillary nerve? This is very important, and you have to do a thorough exam
1: in all dislocations. Motor function can be tested by arm abduction, that's abduction. This tests the function of the deltoid, which the axillary nerve innervates. The sensory function can be tested by testing sensation over the deltoid muscle, which is innervated by the
0: lateral cutaneous branch of the axillary nerve. That's absolutely correct. A thorough neurovascular exam is crucial in all orthopedic injuries.
1: All right, you're up next. A 35-year-old woman presents with chest pain. She has a burning pain that begins in the subxiphoid area and
0: radiates up into
1: her neck. Occasionally, she has a bitter taste in her mouth. Her EKG and chest x-ray are both normal. Which of the following is most likely to help her symptoms? Is it a avoidance of fatty foods? B. Calcium channel blocker therapy. C. Eradication of H. pylori, or D. Head-of-the-bed elevation while sleeping.
0: Hmm. 35. No cardiac risk factors, normal EKG, and normal chest x-ray. This sounds a lot like reflux. In general, lifestyle modifications are always the first treatment of choice. So I'll go with choice D here, head of bed elevation while sleeping.
1: Yep, that dull pressure or squeezing sensation in the middle of the chest is classic for GERD. Although anti therapy, proton pump inhibitors, and H2 blockers are the medical therapies of choice, you should always try behavioral and lifestyle modifications first, like weight loss and head of the bed elevation.
0: And don't forget about avoiding substances that typically increase reflux, like caffeine, alcohol, chocolate, and acidic foods.
1: Why don't you walk us through the other answer choices here before the next question?
0: Sure. Choice A, avoidance of fatty foods, may help, but that's the primary intervention for patients with biliary colic. So that answer is meant to fool you. Choice B, calcium channel blockers, those are used for patients with esophageal spasm. Patients with spasm usually describe severe episodes of chest pain that may be associated with some dysphagia. Lastly, choice C, eradication of H. pylori, that's only indicated for those with a known or suspected infection based on testing and risk factors. And remind us, what's the long-term complication of chronic GERD? Chronic GERD can lead to Barrett's esophagus and can increase your risk for cancer. Enough GERD, let's move on to the next question. You diagnose a 43-year-old with alcohol withdrawal. Lab studies reveal a hemoglobin of 8 and an MCV of 115. Which of the following is the most common cause of these findings? Is it A, chronic alcohol abuse, B, pyridoxine deficiency, C, thiamine deficiency, or D, vitamin B12 deficiency.
1: Unfortunately, we see this all too often. The answer here is definitely choice A, chronic alcohol abuse.
0: Exactly. The ethanol itself directly suppresses bone marrow, causing anemia and even pancytopenia. The anemia, seen secondary to chronic ethanol abuse, is a macrocytic anemia, as seen here with an MCV of greater than 100.
1: The other answers here are pretty tempting too if you read too quickly, or in your case, listen too quickly. Pyridoxine deficiency is seen in a variety of circumstances, especially in kids and those taking chronic isoniazid.
0: Pyridoxine deficiency leads to a sideroblastic micro, not macrocytic anemia. Thiamine deficiency is often seen in alcoholics because they're generally poor diet, but it doesn't cause a macrocytic anemia. B12 deficiency, on the other hand, can cause a megaloblastic anemia and pancytopenia, but it's seen more commonly in those with absorptive problems, not in those with poor dietary intake like this alcoholic patient.
1: Great review. We'll have to do a rapid review on that in the future, but for now, we'll move on. A 36-year-old female with multiple sclerosis presents with progressive monocular vision loss over the preceding several hours. Which of the following exam findings would be expected? Is it A, an afferent pupillary defect, B, diplopia on upward gaze, C, a hazy cornea, or D, sharp disc margins?
0: So this has to be optic neuritis, which causes choice A, an afferent pupillary defect, also known as a Marcus Gunn pupil. On physical exam, you can identify this when a light is moved from the unaffected eye to the affected eye, and you see a pupillary dilation instead of constriction.
1: Exactly. In MS, focal demyelination of the optic nerve leads to progressive loss of vision over hours to even days. The symptoms are often unilateral and may be preceded by retrobulbar pain or extraocular muscle pain that can be reproduced on palpation.
0: Yeah, and although most of the pain resolves, it may take months for the visual disturbances to resolve. Sadly, approximately 30% of these patients with optic neuritis go on to develop MS within five years. IV steroids can speed up the recovery, but oral steroids don't help. In fact, oral steroids can be associated with an increased risk in optic neuritis occurrences.
1: And quickly, diplopia on upward gaze, that's seen in patients with inferior rectus muscle entrapment due to an orbital blowout fracture. A hazy cornea is seen with acute angle closure glaucoma. And lastly, the disc margins in optic neuritis are pale, not sharp.
0: Nice. And what findings would you expect in an LP in a patient with MS? That's a
1: classic test question. You'd expect a pleocytosis with elevated gamma globulin and 85 to 95% oligoclonal bands.
0: Great. You're up next. Which of the following statements is true regarding giant cell arteritis? Is it A, aortic involvement can lead to valvular disease and dissection? B, corticosteroid therapy should be initiated only when biopsy confirms the disease? C, histologic findings of inflammation are irreversible? Or D, it's associated with sudden, painful binocular vision loss.
1: Choice B, withholding steroids until confirmed by biopsy, that's definitely wrong. Choice D, painful binocular vision loss, that's wrong because giant cell arteritis is associated with a sudden, painless, monocular vision loss. And lastly, choice C, that's wrong because the classic histologic findings are rapidly reversed with steroid therapy. So that leaves us with choice A, aortic involvement can lead to valvular disease and dissection.
0: Exactly. And remember that giant cell arteritis is a chronic segmental vasculitis of medium and large vessels. It commonly affects one or more branches of the carotid artery, such as the temporal artery, ophthalmic artery, or posterior ciliary artery. As you said, it can also affect the aorta, leading to valvular insufficiency, aortic arch syndrome, and even dissection.
1: And unfortunately, the only confirmatory test is a temporal artery biopsy. And as I said above, we can't wait for that in the ED. So be on the lookout for the common symptoms. That's unilateral temporal headache, jaw claudication, tender temporal artery, sudden painless monocular vision loss, and a very elevated ESR, usually in the range of 50 to 100.
0: It's also more common in women over 50, and up to 50% of patients with temporal arteritis also have polymyalgia rheumatica.
1: Oh yeah, that's a great association to remember for tests. You're up for the last question of the day. Which of the following describes a burn that causes pressure and discomfort, extends into the dermis, and may have thick-walled blisters or even be leathery white? Is it A, a first-degree burn, B, a second-degree deep partial thickness burn, C, a second-degree superficial partial thickness burn,
0: or D, a third-degree burn? This has to be choice B, a second-degree deep partial thickness burn.
1: Nailed it. Let's run through some of the burn classifications since we haven't discussed
0: them yet. Okay, first degree burns affect the epidermis. They have a superficial thickness and are characterized by pain, redness, and mild swelling.
1: Second degree burns have been broken down into two categories, superficial and deep partial thickness burns. Superficial partial thickness burns affect the papillary region of the dermis. They cause pain, blisters, splotchy skin, and severe swelling. Deep partial thickness burns affect the reticular region of the dermis and are white, leathery, and relatively painless.
0: Lastly, full thickness burns, also known as third-degree burns, affect the hypodermis. They're charred, insensate, and may have SCARS forming. There are even fourth degree burns which affect the deeper tissues like the subcutaneous fat, muscles, and bone. In terms of treatment
1: and prognosis, superficial partial thickness burns usually re-epithelialize in 7 to 10 days and fully heal in 2 to 3 weeks without scarring. Deep partial thickness burns may undergo spontaneous epithelialization, but they take between 3 and 6 weeks to heal completely. They also have a greater potential for hypertrophic scar formation and even joint contracture depending on the location of the burn. They may also require topical antimicrobial dressings.
0: Yeah, and surgery is necessary for all third degree or full thickness burns. For fourth degree burns, significant debridement and reconstruction will definitely be needed. Exactly.
1: Let's close out episode 13 with a rapid review. The hill sachs defect is the most common complication of an anterior shoulder dislocation, occurring in up to 40% of cases.
0: The hill sachs defect is a depression fracture of the posterior lateral surface of the humeral head, not to be confused with the Bankart lesion, which is a fracture of the anterior aspect of the inferior glenoid rim.
1: Axillary nerve function can be tested by arm abduction, that's abduction, and sensation over the deltoid muscle.
0: Initial treatment for GERD should begin with lifestyle and behavior modifications, such as weight loss and head-of-bed elevation.
1: Untreated GERD can lead to barred esophagus and increase the risk for cancer.
0: In chronic alcohol abuse, you may see macrocytic anemia and pancytopenia, which is due to the bone marrow suppression effects of ethanol.
1: Pyridoxine deficiency leads to sideroblastic microcytic anemia. It is seen in children and those on chronic isoniazid.
0: Vitamin B12 deficiency usually occurs secondary to absorptive problems rather than poor dietary intake. Vitamin B12 deficiency causes megaloblastic anemia and pancytopenia.
1: The progressive monocular vision loss seen in MS causes an afferent pupillary defect, also known as a Marcus Gunn pupil.
0: Temporal arteritis commonly presents with unilateral temporal headache, jaw claudication, tender temporal artery, sudden painless monocular vision loss, and an ESR between 50 and 100.
1: Up to 50% of patients with giant cell arteritis have polymyalgia rheumatica.
0: Giant cell arteritis should be treated with immediate steroids, long before biopsy confirms the diagnosis. In giant cell arteritis, aortic involvement can lead to valvular disease and dissection. First degree burns affect the epidermis, have a superficial thickness, and are characterized by pain, redness, and mild swelling. Superficial partial thickness burns affect the papillary region of the dermis. They cause
1: pain, blisters, splotchy skin, and severe swelling.
0: Deep partial thickness burns affect the reticular region of the dermis and are white, leathery, and relatively painless. Full thickness
1: burns affect the hypodermis and are charred, insensate, and eschars may form. From orthopedics to rheumatology and a host of things in between, that wraps up Unlucky, episode number 13. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes so that the next episode will be downloaded
0: automatically. And be sure to take some time to re-listen to old episodes to really drive home some of the teaching points. We'll be taking a break next week so Jeff can enjoy his honeymoon, but we'll have an episode ready for you the following week. See you guys next time.